0: The Slaughter and May podcast.
1: Hello and welcome. It is November 2023, and this is a, uh, the first of a series of four podcasts uh, with the Slaughter and May Financial Institutions Group talking about the consumer duty. What we're going to do is, with this podcast, we're going to provide a general stock take on where we are with consumer duty, what's coming up, and some of the key themes that we've seen in recent work with our clients. And then our subsequent podcast, the next three, are going to be deep dives into the areas of the insurance sector, the banking sector, and the asset management sector to look at some of the key thematic issues that we're working with clients in those sectors on. Starting off with this podcast, I think what we need to do is to take a stock take on where things are and what the material themes coming out of consumer duty implementation have been so far. So before we do that, let me introduce you to the team. I'm Nick Bonsall, and I'm delighted to be joined by Christina Lockmail, David Schoen, Jan Putnis, who's the co-head of our financial institutions practice, and I'm particularly delighted to be joined by Charles Randall, the former chair of the Financial Conduct Authority and member of the Prudential Regulation Committee at the Bank of England. Christina, perhaps you could start us off. Can you just give us the quick synopsis? Where are we now? What have we been seeing in the market over the recent months?
0: Uh, sure. Um, so, as everyone will know, that the first implementation deadline has um, passed this July. That was preceded by a lot of hard work on behalf of all financial services firms. And as tempting as it is to think that we could all take a breather now, the work is only just beginning. Uh, and this is because, obviously, there's a, 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 an expectation on uh, ongoing monitoring and embedding the duty into the firm's culture. The next deadline will come next July and I'm pretty sure that all of us are very busy right now looking at the back books of the products that are no longer live but that that will be perhaps even more technical and and, uh, challenging to uh, review and assess for the purposes of the duty. Before we turn to the discussion on what the supervisory and enforcement priorities are likely to be in the next few months, I think it's worth having a very quick look and a reminder of the key components of the duty. It's been described as a paradigm shift in regulatory expectations of firms, raising the bar on standard of consumer protection and customer care, all bold statements of intent and expectation. I think it's very important to bear in mind, however, that it is essentially a duty to act. And that means to be intentional and proactive in ensuring that consumers receive good outcomes. So that is the primary objective of of the duty. But we also need to remember that the firms are required to produce evidence that they consistently meet the good outcomes. And, And that has its own practical implications on how you deal with implementation and embedding of the duty. So what are these good outcomes? Whilst there may be differences in how firms in different sectors approach and evidence their assessment and implementation of the duty, broadly speaking firms across the board will need to show that they offer products and services that are suitable for their customers, that they provide clear information about the products to aid the understanding of the consumers about those products and services and so that they are able to make informed decisions. The other outcome would be to respect customers' var- varied needs. And that includes very big emphasis on vulnerability, vulnerable circumstances. And firms are also expected to respect customers' varied needs, including any invulnerable circumstances, and do so every time they interact with them for example, through proportionate and appropriate forbearance and enforcement policies. And finally, firms are expected to offer genuinely helpful customer support with easy access, so customers need to get support they need when they need it. Importantly, finally, this is not a box-ticking exercise. The FCA's messages on this point are clear. It intends to make the consumer duty an integral part of its regulatory approach and mindset. So with that in mind, I think it's worth now having a look at the key themes that are emerging from the wealth of information, guidance, speeches, podcasts, and more importantly, the portfolio letters that the FCA has issued uh, relating to the implementation of the duty.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Christina. That's really, really helpful. And David, what are we seeing firms doing? So what do firms have to do in terms of reporting? Christina mentioned evidential requirements. What are we seeing firms doing on that?
2: Well, I think one of the really important things to bear in mind about the consumer duty in general is that it's not just a big bang of regulation that, that stops there uh, once, it's, once it's been introduced. It is a dynamic thing that is intended to apply across across a firm's business. And that's reflected in the reporting requirements that, that apply under the duty. So we've seen this year the, the main deadline for for open products and services. As Christina said, we've got the deadline next year for closed books. And at the same time, so 31st of July next year, the first annual reporting deadline is, is then. And from you know, by by that point, firms will have been required to produce their first annual report on what they are doing to comply with the with the consumer duty. And of course, those reports will need to be backed up with evidence as to the steps they have taken to embed the consumer duty, both in relation to open products and the steps that they are taking to assess
1: the um, the, the closed books that they might be running. Awesome, thanks. And Jan, what are we we seeing in practice? I mean, are are, are firms ready for that? Um, Do we expect the FCA to be closely scrutinising the way that firms are preparing themselves for the annual reporting requirement?
3: Yes, and that's only just begun. There was a limited amount the FCA could do to monitor the implementation work that firms were doing before the duty came into force. Um, And we're only just beginning to see the, the types of FCA intervention one can expect to become more commonplace in the coming months and years. In terms of inquiries into what firms have done to ensure, for example, that their value assessments are current and be done on the correct basis. So lots more to come there, um and plenty of correspondence and discussion now going on, especially between the larger firms and the FCA.
1: Thank you, Jan. I mean, I think we've got to turn to you now, Charles. And and you know, you've heard our reflections on this. I mean, you were you were there, you were in the, the meat of this at the FCA, chairing the FCA when the the duty was conceived and must have seen some of the FCA's early preparations for for the implementation of the duty. Is it playing out how you expected? What are your observations?
4: Thanks, Nick. I think it is broadly shaping up as I expected it would uh, when I was at the FCA. But I have heard two data points from conversations with uh, senior members of large financial services boards, one of them saying, that their investors were worried that this might make UK financial services uninvestable. The other one saying exactly the opposite and criticising this as a tick box exercise. And clearly they can't both be right. And I think they're both wrong, in fact. I think it lies somewhere in the middle. It's clearly a major change in uh, the expectations of financial services firms. And it's certainly not a tick box exercise. I think any board that approaches this as a tick box exercise is in for a very nasty shock. But it that doesn't mean that firms can't make money. And we can come on to that later on in our discussion.
1: Great. I mean that's just fascinating, isn't it? I don't I, I you know I think the idea that the consumer duty is a is a box ticking exercise is um is quite surprising. Look, I mean I think what we what we should perhaps turn to now are some of the key themes that we're seeing. And, you know, how those pan out across the sectors. I mean, there's, there's obviously high level ideas that we're looking at. So specific products and services have, you know, their own bear traps that fall within them. We have to think about fair value. We have to think about, you know, customer understanding, disclosure and transparency. And of course, we really have to think about, to, to your point earlier, Christina, the support that customer that, that consumers can expect, and particularly in the world of vulnerable customers, which will be a key part of the discussion I think in our in our banking focused podcast pervasively around all of this and I think we should come onto this. We need to talk about governance and assurance and the ways that firms have been setting themselves up and bolstering the governance arrangements that they have around the consumer duty. But Christina, perhaps you could just give us an overview of, you know, key themes that that we've been particularly focused on. Uh
0: of course so as I mentioned there's a wealth of guidance speeches, podcasts, and more importantly, a whole series of sector-specific portfolio letters where the FCA sets out its expectations for the near future in terms of the implementation of the consumer duty and how it expects the firms to embed the duty. I think that's a very good indication uh, and clearly of the topics and the themes where we we should expect regulatory, supervisory and enforcement priorities to lie in the next few months. And they follow broadly the four outcomes. Fair value, we've already mentioned a few times, that's a very big theme. And in fact, the FCA has already done a lot of work in terms of looking at the fair value assessment that firms have carried out in preparation for implementation of the duty. Yeah, and particularly in asset management. Yeah, Exactly. But also, you know, continuing with the theme of dealing with vulnerable customers, and perhaps, you know, if I may, expanding that theme. So not just looking at the typical factors that would make a customer vulnerable, but also taking into account the the current and ongoing cost of living uh, crisis and how the price and value assessment uh, needs to look at different segments of customer target market and perhaps even go um, even more granular into looking at each customer's circumstances at the relevant time of the product or service life.
1: That's really topical. And actually, Charles, I want to bring you in on this one, because we hear a lot about price and value. And one of the key sort of, I I might say, criticism, but I suppose I might otherwise say concern, that is being expressed by a number of our clients is that this is actually a move by the regulator to become something closer to a price regulator rather than you know the sort of outcomes-focused regulator and behavioural regulator that perhaps they should be. What's your take on that? Is the FCA becoming a price regulator here?
4: I think the FCA will be very keen not to become a price regulator. And it's been very explicit that the intention is not to set prices. And they say that these rules do not have that effect. On the other hand, they also say that there has to be a reasonable relationship between the price of a product or service and the benefits that the customer Receives now that may sound as if it's heading in the direction of price setting, but the question I'd ask is, how can a customer be treated fairly if, in fact, they're being charged a price for the product that does not have a relationship to the benefit that they receive? So I don't think, to my mind, it's a huge step change from what the Financial Services Authority probably intended back in you know, nearly twenty years ago when it introduced the treating customers fairly uh, principle. What is explicit, however, in the new consumer duty is a requirement to examine the relationship between the benefits that the customer receives and the price of the product and to evidence that you have a reasonable basis for the pricing of the product. And that builds on really a trend going back several years in a variety of other areas, certainly in non-investment insurance products, in uh, various types of asset management product, in uh, personal pensions, there's been a push towards having the consumer voice represented in the pricing decisions.
1: Yeah, I mean, I see that, and I suppose what we're what we're almost arguing there is that this is a an embellishment on you know concepts like price walking that took place in insurance. It's not it, it it's not that we're telling you how much you should charge. We're telling you that you have to you have to treat customers fairly through their life cycle. And you also have to have some reasonable basis of calculating the charges that you're going to impose. And if
4: I may, I think I think there is some flexibility for the FCA in deciding how far it goes uh, in its policy on price and value. Uh, what it will want to do is to stop short of uh, price setting. And it will also want to stop short of herding everybody into the same band of pricing and effectively crushing competition out of the market. So I think the coming years will be critical for the FCA, in particular in this area of how it approaches price and value.
3: The, the other important thing that we've seen when it comes to uh, advising firms that do, for whatever reason, seek to charge more for an element of their service, is that they're going to be in a much better position to explain that to the FCA if, they, if they've thought in advance what justifies that, often by looking at some other benefit that they provide as part of the package of services that they provide to
4: the same customers. I would say also that the way in which the FCA is likely to approach the question of price and value is not just divorced from the other aspects of the consumer duty, including the cross-cutting rules. Clearly, if your customers are vulnerable, then the burden on you to assess the reasonableness of the pricing is higher. Clearly, if you're not giving very clear information or support to your customers, the burden on you to prove that you are pricing your products appropriately is higher so I think it's really important when you look at price and value to look at the totality of the consumer duty as well as the price and value aspects
1: we have to be balanced there don't we Charles I mean uh you know you could have the same product that's sold to you know a vulnerable customer and not a vulnerable customer and you know you, you can't differentiate the price for the vulnerable customer simply because they're they're vulnerable can you no, but what you can do
4: is look at the core user of your product and work out why it is that you're able to charge the the price that you're able to charge. And if the answer is because they're desperate, yes. they have no alternative, then the burden on you to justify the way that you're pricing it, I think, is higher.
1: And I suppose it logically follows also that when that person comes to you with concerns about affordability or their personal circumstances, then the the, the processes that have to have been implemented and that are in place to provide support to that customer must be greater and there's a greater burden on you to show that that's, that's something that you've taken the steps to achieve. Is that is that's that where you would be? absolutely right, yes.
0: I, I think also in terms of a practical point here, there's a real practical challenge for the firms here around segmentation because th- that's the question of offering, being able to offer the same product to a well-defined target market, but also thinking Around the sort of the edges, the perimeter of that target market, are you just on the edge of the target market and therefore more likely to be vulnerable or different, and therefore the price and value considerations should be different.
1: Yes, it's different, isn't it? I mean it's the it's the interesting thing about segmentation where it's 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 great as part of your internal processes and almost necessary as part of your internal processes as a firm to be able to bucket people up and say we have four customer characterised you know categorizations. Everyone fits within these. The reality of the world is that no one fits perfectly with any one single bucket. And you have or that to they have, can move. In, or, in the, fact. Or, or they move between them, exactly. And you have to have processes set up to do that.
3: Yeah. And what that means, of course, is that you can't ever achieve a situation where the products you offer offer the same value to all of your customers. But the, the key point is to ensure that you disclose the features of those products in sufficient detail and more to the point, clarity that those customers are in a position to make up their mind as to whether the product works for them.
0: I think this is also where the outcome, the the expectation that you provide a higher, a standard of customer care throughout the life of the product comes in, where in those circumstances that we're discussing, perhaps there needs to be a proactive communication with those customers, offering them alternatives, uh, or you know taking into account their 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 circumstances at the time. And perhaps, you know, moving them off to a different product, which is more suitable if you cannot justify the pricing point.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think what I'd like to do now, actually, is talk about governance for a bit. We'll talk about governance and then I think we should just give a little bit of an overview of some of the things that we'll talk about in our three subsequent podcasts. And then, then we can then we can end, I think. But I think for the moment, just looking at the practical steps that we've seen firms take from a governance perspective. We see, you know, annual reports this year. SFCR's pillar three, setting out in you know quite some detail actually, the um, the integrated approach from product teams all the way up to the board that describe the reporting lines for consumer duty compliance and the key role that will be played as part of that by the the non-executive director nominated to you know spearhead firms uh, approaches. Yeah Charles what 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 are your thoughts from a governance perspective on you know what firms should be thinking about or what they should be doing
4: to my mind the key thing that the FCA will want to see is not just that somebody's been badged with the consumer duty on the board but also that there's a mechanism for bringing the consumer experience and the consumer voice into that governance process and so I think one of the challenges for firms is to work out how they uh, how they show that they're engaging with their target market groups and uh, receiving both evidence of the outcomes that those people are experiencing, but also an understanding of their personal circumstances. And I think uh, that's, that's probably an area in which the implementation of the consumer duty has yet uh, quite a lot of maturing to do. And firms will get better over time at engaging with their customer base, and they will assemble more data And information about their customer base over time that will enable them to make better judgments about the experiences that their customers are actually having.
1: Which is fascinating so that's you know it's all it's almost it's all very well to have you know your well-designed and integrated governance you know framework set up internally but the functioning of that is only as good as the information that is being reported. Do you have all of the components of key information that you need and of course one of them in a consumer outcomes-focused exercise should be the voice of the consumers. Really interesting. Jan?
3: And one of the challenges there has been to work out what sort of assistance the firms need. This is a multidisciplinary uh, project. Uh, It's certainly not a project that uh, should be dominated by lawyers, in my view. The legal element to it is one element to it. But understanding how customers behave, understanding how customer vulnerability affects their needs and likely behaviours, all requires expert input. And there are various consultants and developing consultancies that can help with this. But I think this is still a nascent area where firms are currently lacking some of the help they need and the external assurance that they might need in some of these areas. So I expect that to grow and there to be opportunities for people to advise in this area.
2: Thanks, Jan. David, any thoughts? I, I think coming back to something that Charles was saying it's really interesting to see the way that that different groups have approached this and and actually I found it quite encouraging that uh, most of the most of the conversations that we've been having reflect the the seriousness with which financial services groups are taking this I think really what should be the aspiration here is a, is a positive feedback loop or a, a process of constant dialogue between the product teams and the and the governance bodies, whatever they may be, including, of course, the the, the board and the consumer duty champion. So it's a question of making sure that there's the correct management information flowing up to the top and then the correct tone being set from the top all the way down so that this is reflected holistically in the design of the products, but also in the types of questions that the board and other senior stakeholders within an organisation are asking about how those products actually work when
1: they're deployed in the real world. I'm glad you say that because those are exactly the conversations that I've been having. You know, look. I think what we what we should do. We're we, we're we're just about at a wrap. I mean, I think um, you know, just to set the scene for our sector specific podcast following this one. Why don't we just do a quick quick fire round, turning to to each of you, and and perhaps you can just call out the you know, the, the key thing that people can you know look forward to or expect in our um, upcoming podcast, Christina. I'll turn to you. Put you on the spot. The banking and consumer finance sector focused podcast what should people be looking out for?
0: Yes so I I think fair value assessment uh, remains a key theme for banking uh, in terms of products, current accounts, overdrafts, small businesses and the services that they receive and perhaps retail mortgage lending.
1: Lots there. Lots to unpick. I know that that's going to be a fascinating podcast. David, I'll put you on the spot with insurance. What should we be seeing?
2: All right. Well, you've got to give me two. I'm going to take for life insurance and for general insurance, both back book questions. But on the life side, it's, it's got to be long term savings products and, and the application and exercise of vested rights in, in that context. Yeah. And for, for GI, I think the really tricky question is going to be around wholesale. wholesale insurance market and how actually products that we don't think of as consumer products can impact consumers that's sitting at the end of the distribution
1: chain. Ah yeah, a really good point. The sort of hidden consumer. Jan, asset management.
2: Well, is this a, a further
3: dagger to the heart of active management strategies and their associated fee structures? We'll be examining
1: that and comparing that with the likely treatment of the the passive managers. I really hope it's not a dagger to the heart. I don't think it is. I think actually it's just a it's just a sharpener. But Charles You know, final word, have we got it right?
4: Well, I think all of those are certainly very important topics, and I'm looking forward to those podcasts. But I would say that the focus of all the points you've made has been products. And I think it's clear that the FCA is losing patience with service standards. And so this whole question of the support that's given to consumers uh, at the back end of their relationship with a firm uh, when they ring up uh, and get held in a queue for 40 minutes or an hour, the FCO's patience on that is wearing very thin, and that's a key part of the consumer duty.
1: Really, really interesting, and food for thought. Well, look, this has been Slaughter May Financial Institution Group, first podcast on consumer duty, more to come. Thanks for listening.
0: For more information on this topic, or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the
3: Slaughter in May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.